Hi, everybody. I'm Patrick McKenzie, and this is the I Don't Even Know What It Is episode of the Calzumius Podcast. Uh, thanks for staying with us. Keith, unfortunately, can't make it today. He and his wife and daughters are having fun back in Japan, but I am here in sunny Palo Alto, California, with a buddy of mine who founded a company. We'll tell, talk a little bit about the story later, but he founded a company which, these days, it's Close.io. Close.io. Y Combinator funded company. <laughs> and uh, so, meet Stelly. Hey guys, I'm super excited and honored to be on the podcast. I'm a big fan of it. So, Sally, can you tell us a little bit about your background? You're, you know, I'm more from the engineering end of the house, and you are not. Yep. Well, I'm originally from Greece, born and raised in Germany, and I'm a basically a high school dropout that has no credentials whatsoever, completely unemployable, and that never had a real job in my life. So. I've been an entrepreneur my whole life, mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of times I joke that the entrepreneurial superpower that I use uh, to to move things forward is the hustle and sales. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I love communicating. I love people. I love moving things forward on the business end of things. Uh, so I've been a, a sale, an entrepreneurial salesperson my whole life. For the first few years, small businesses, bootstrap businesses, back in. Europe, and then seven and a half years ago, sold everything I had, bought a one-way ticket to come to Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. follow the legend of becoming a tech entrepreneur, and with the mission to be the stupidest person in the room, and I've accomplished that every day ever <laughs> since, and uh, did first a business that you know spectacularly failed in a very painful way, and then this is the second venture, which took a few turns left and right, and we'll talk about that, mm-hmm. but that uh, thankfully today is doing really, really well. So one of the reasons I want to have Steli on the program is that uh, Steli is one of the most successful sales guys that I know. And I know uh, it's a personal weakness of myself that when I've learned enough about sales and marketing to be dangerous, but I tend to always reach immediately for the low-touch sales for things that can be automated that play to my strengths. So doing search engine optimization, working out copy, working on scalable email strategies, lifecycle emails, that sort of thing with the goal that I never get on the phone with anybody and that I send as few emails as possible. And that's worked out pretty decently for my business, but there's definitely times where I've thought back when I was doing consulting that, man, I just totally botched this opportunity for a $50,000 consulting gig because I was insufficiently aggressive like following up with folks or when I'm working on appointment reminder where the top-level accounts have lifetime values in like the $6,000 region. It would totally justify me getting on a phone, and yet I think like a lot of people listening to this, I have no idea of where that even starts. So I think we want to talk a little bit about sales for software entrepreneurs and how you can use this to make your business better. And maybe before we do that, talk a little bit about the elephant in the room, which is that <laughs> all engineers are socialized from a very young age to hate sales and everything it stands for. <laughs> um, that Hacker News anecdote was priceless. So these guys launched a, a Close.io, which is a CRM, basically, by sales guys for sales guys. It launched on Hacker News, maybe, what was it, two years ago? Uh, January 2013. January 2013. And the first comment on Hacker News was about your pricing strategy. Not about, not about the pricing strategy, it was about the pricing. So it was like $125 a seat, that's outrageous, I could like build this in a weekend. And uh, one of your engineers actually wrote back and said, well, you shouldn't see $125 in the context of that's a lot of money to pay for software. You should see it in the context of if each of your uh, sales reps was getting even one more lead closed a month into a deal. And this would work, be worth much, much more than $125. And I wrote back on that. See, this is how a smart sales guy uh, answers a pricing objection. Value-oriented pricing, it's a wonderful thing. 
But turns out that was one of the engineers, actually. He was yeah. super proud that uh, that Patrick called him out as a sales guy, as a smart <laughs> sales guy. He was like, I'm not even a sales guy. <laughs> yeah, but um, I don't know. We've got the, we have this unfortunate and inaccurate socialization in the dev community that all sales guys are like the characters on Glengarry Ross. It's the uh, always be closing. Uh, first prize is a Corvette and second prize is steak knives. The third prize is your fire. Uh, like caricature of sales guys. And oh, I think that, I don't know, I've never seen the movie. My understanding is that it was intended as a caricature, but some people like kind of idolize it. But be that as it may, yeah. that's not actually what sales is about. So why don't you talk a little. You've uh, worked with, a while ago, you guys did basically sales consulting for software companies. Yep. So you would either tell them how to set up sales operations for software companies, or you would actually like be the guys who man the phones and sell their software to various prospects. Talk a little about software sales, how it like fits into the, the picture of a software company and the picture of the uh, the buyer's company. Maybe even before I comment on that, on the whole like sales versus engineering, the cultural clash between the two groups, yeah. um, maybe just a few thoughts or observations that I've made over the years. So I do think that engineers in general and salespeople speak different languages. Definitely. And therefore, there's a lot that is lost in translation when they interact with each other. So, you know, what I've seen is that building up empathy between the two groups can be incredibly valuable, educational to the individuals as well as to the company as a whole. So, you know, we would have retweets where we would have engineers do sales training mm-hmm. and they would have to pitch the product and or do simulate a cold call and a salesperson would be kind of a very difficult customer mm-hmm. and have them go through the pain of what makes sales difficult mm-hmm. so they can empathize more with it and then also train them on how to get better at it and vice versa have salespeople being kind of small product brainstorming sessions and actually make them understand that you can't just say, well, can we make this faster? Or mm-hmm. could you just make just quickly just at this little feature that does this, but actually have them think through all the implications of product development and like how little is not really little or this easy feature is not really that easy and have them understand, you know, from an engineering point of view, what it takes. And once these two groups know a bit more about how each other's work looks like and what is hard about it and what is easy, just magical things happen. Yeah. Definitely. I also think that there's opportunities um, that are underexplored in a lot of software companies to make the sales teams uh, life easier with software. Like most of the time when I'm talking about things that I build, say in my consultancy or for my own products, it's using engineering to achieve marketing outcomes. But you can also have engineering to achieve sales outcomes, like building, like you guys have built a internal CRM, which you spun out into a product, uh, but even with companies that already have CRMs or they already have an existing sales process, it's amazing what you can do with a cron job and a, a hundred lines of logic in a Ruby application just to uh, to kind of smooth that process along or systematize it a little bit. Maybe we can talk about that in a minute. Yeah. But um, let's talk about for the folks here who don't have a quote-unquote sales function at their software company yet. Maybe yeah. it's just a solo founder. You know, they've got a website. People come to the website. They probably buy SaaS. In, a, what we, in the business, we have a distinction between low-touch sales and high-touch sales. Low touch is the 37 signals model. You have a website which does most of the selling for you. Folks are brought to the website via some combination of search engine optimization, ad spending, yada, yada. They get to the website. The website tries to get them into a free trial. The free trial is going to be the primary sales channel. And then maybe there's some email that's getting fired back and forth, generally in an automated drip email kind of fashion, lifecycle emails. And occasionally, the founder will write emails. But... 
the understanding is that the founder isn't really making the sale at that point. That point, it's convincing someone who has already convinced themselves on the software to like get over the last hump. Yeah. High touch sales is the other end of the things where uh, folks are. Broadly speaking, they're getting on the phone, getting on emails, writing person-to-person communications with particular decision-makers at the company. And, man, there's a lot of art and science in this guy's. Uh, it runs billions upon billions of dollars of business in the economy. But in the SaaS industry, specifically, it's typically, there's like tiers of uh, sophistication of software where it makes sense to have high trust sales. At the way high end, we have like large-scale enterprise sales where you're selling to like literally Boeing. And that process takes between 6 and 18 months. It's going to require... Typically, that you send out the uh, sales guy plus a support engineer who can a- answer all the technical questions. You send them out to the office. They do a, a custom presentation that they've built specifically for Boeing's use case. Mm-hmm. And uh, this starts, the presentation happens. They then go and take them out to a steak dinner where business is actually uh, <laughs> contemplated. And then this continues for several months. And then maybe that happens, maybe that doesn't. The new innovation in the SaaS industry is that, uh, typically speaking, the account manager it's name for sales guy. Account manager, sales engineer team is only really viable for sales that are in the like $75,000 plus, plus, plus region a year. You can read the classic essay on this by uh, Joel Spolsky. It's called Camels and Rubber Duckies. And he says that basically there's no software price between $500 and $75,000. Why is that? $500, you can convince a single person to put it on their credit card. $75,000, you can send out a sales rep and a support engineer to their organization and do the PowerPoint dance to get the 15 different decision makers on the same page. The interesting thing that's happened in the 10 years since Joel wrote that essay is that SaaS arrived and the wonders of monthly billing mean that you can actually get accounts with a lifetime value between $5,000 and $75,000. Sorry, $500 and $75,000. So my understanding of it is that after account gets to maybe... $80 a month in value to like the $250 range. If you model it out as having a churn rate in like the 5% or less region, then we're talking about $1,500,000 to several thousand dollars of lifetime value. And then it suddenly starts to make a lot of sense to have somebody call them. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I, I do think that um, volume frequency mm-hmm. matters. So if you're on the low end, let's say uh, the customer lifetime value that you have is, let's say, 2K, mm-hmm. you can't have a salesperson call you know, tens and tens of leads that don't fall into that to close one of those. Sure. Right? You would have to have a high close rate and high frequency rate of, of people that are in that, that bracket. Mm-hmm. Everything that is above five, 5 to 10K is probably more comfortable, more comfortable space in terms of customer lifetime value. Mm-hmm. So you want it to be in the few hundred dollars a month range, ideally. But that dramatically varies on your market, your churn rate, right? And, and like how long do you actually are able to retain customers how high is the volume of these leads that you're getting? So all that needs a little bit of mathing and experimenting and exploring around. Mm-hmm. But uh, but typically, I would say if you're if you can estimate that a customer is worth a few thousand dollars, mm-hmm. it's definitely the right spot to try out inside sales and inbound sales mm-hmm. and and see what you can what magic you can work there. So inside sales is something that a lot of folks might not have heard before. Um, typically, there's like a distinction between inside sales and out. I think it's outside or outbound sales. Uh, outside, outbound. No, inside sales. So this is complicated. You're right. Uh, so <laughs> there's inbound and outbound sales. Okay. Which describes inbound describes selling leads that are coming to you, signing up for webinars, for your product trials, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Outbound describing you cold emailing, cold calling, knocking on doors, going out to people proactively. Mm-hmm. And then there is that's inbound and outbound. And then there's inside sales and field sales. Inside being 
any salesperson that doesn't leave the building to do their job. Gotcha. So email, call, webinars, or web conferencing, and then field sales, the people that actually have to you know, get on a plane and fly to Boeing yeah. you know, and spend a week there to actually do, make the deal happen. Mm-hmm. Or the door-to-door sales guys, uh, whatever it is. Right, right. So inbound sales are probably where most of the SaaS companies who might be listening yeah. to this are going to get started with sales. Yeah. So somebody's come to the website, they've either they've signed up for the free trial of the software or they are on our email list. Mm-hmm. What is the next step for us if we want to get started with inbound sales? I think it I know that it's easier than we think it is, but <laughs> but just it's to hear somebody harder. say it. Yeah, no, it, it it is actually very easy. I mean, there's two channels you can uh, communicate with somebody that comes to your website, right, and signs up either for your trial or your demo or you know your ebook or whatever you do. One is if you if all you have is their email, so you send them an email, and the purpose of that email can be to learn more about them, qualify them for, further, and sell them. Although I would say that email is typically better for giving people information, maybe scheduling a call, but selling, if you actually want to convince somebody to sell somebody on something, a phone call or in-person meeting are still a lot more richer environments, more successful environments to make that happen. Mm-hmm. So you could use an email to try to get on, on a call with somebody, or if you're asking them for a phone number, you can pick up the phone and give them a damn call, right? Which mm-hmm. is something too many startups don't do. Amen. Yes. Uh, Totally guilty of this myself, but it's uh, probably do in a good month. I do maybe ten to fifteen calls regarding appointment reminder. And uh, if I was based out of the U.S. and actually operating better, I could probably, like, if I was in you know sales and marketing mode for a week, could very easily do ten to fifteen a day. And most people that that run a SaaS business and are like bootstrap or single founder would their minds would be blown to even consider talking to ten people. Right? Mm-hmm. They they've built the entire business in a way that prevents that interaction on that level to happen because phone calls are seen as kind of old school, non-scalable. Yeah. And also it's for, for people, it's a lot more comfortable to write their thoughts and have time to articulate that in writing and mm-hmm. have the comfort of if rejection happens or something else happens or they don't hear back, it's much more comfortable to have rejection happen in your inbox than actually have it happen live in real time yeah. from another human being. My first exposure to the, the stresses of being on the phone, I wasn't even a sales job. I was a customer service representative at an office supply company, which you would use to buy things like paper or staples. Anyhow, <laughs> so I was the guy that you would call and say, hey, I want 400 pens, and I would have to figure out what that actually was in the system, type up the order for you, and hit go. And uh, so occasionally I would give folk, folks phone calls about their fax orders. So it's not a sales job. It's like just literally calling to follow up about an order someone's already placed. Like maybe you know you said you wanted four hundred pens, but what color do you want? That's sort of important. Mm-hmm. Or you said you wanted four hundred black pens. Do you want four hundred black pens like the Beak model, or do you want four hundred pens of something that's branded or what? And so I'll give folks phone calls, and often you know if you call an office and say, "Hey, I'm Patrick McKenzie calling for name of company here." immediately get, we don't want any. They slam the phone on you. And man, I felt so bad when that happened. Yeah. And eventually got a bit of a thick skin about it for those two years. And then promptly lost that thick skin when I started a software business. (laughs) But yeah, it's, rejection's tough. Yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit Mm -hmm. because I think, you know, I think that the whole point of rejection is probably one of the things that I see most common between sales and entrepreneurship in general, having to kind of reprogram ourselves on 
how we uh, respond to rejection. Mm -hmm. Because if you live your life in a way that tries to design for avoiding as much rejection as possible, there's very little things you can do. Almost nothing in sales, very little in entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. So here's a couple of of thoughts on the rejection piece. And then I want to give just some like, how do you get started? How should I call somebody who just signed up for a trial? What even do I tell them, Mm -hmm. right? So let's talk about those, maybe those two things. So on the rejection piece, for whatever reason, we all gotten here with whatever programming, social conditioning, we our little bags of DNA, that kind of character, yep. whatever that is, you know, everybody, everybody uh, dislikes rejection. There's not mm-hmm. a single person on earth, no matter how awesome they are, that likes to be rejected. Mm-hmm. But the question is, how can we figure out a way to deal with that rejection in a way that's not too horrifying, too painful, too emotionally taxing? And Early on, there are maybe a couple of practical tips that I have that are kind of super hacks for our own brain that are easy to do but can make a big difference. Mm -hmm. One simple thing is to kind of reprogram the scoreboard to, instead of focusing on the wins, understand that the the losses are your stepping stones towards your wins. So Mm -hmm. we're all kind of like SaaS people, conversion rates, metrics, right? So let's say that you figure out that if you call, you know, 100 signups, that only 10 of them, you know, on average will actually want to speak to you, have a great conversation, and then end up buying the product, right? Uh, that doesn't seem that exciting, right? I'll have to call 100 people and only 10 people will say yes. Let's say that the math works out and that's a good investment of your time, yep. just, just as an exercise. Most people, what they would focus on then is they would say, well, what I have to do is I have to get 10 people to say yes every day. And then they focus on the success. So you have a good day. And bad days, and, and days don't average out equally. Right. So sometimes you have a good day, you get, you know, the first 10 calls, all of them say, yes, they love it, and they buy from you. And you lean back and say, all right, that's it. I got my quota for today. I got 10 wins. You know, let's take the rest of the day off. Mm-hmm. And then you have another day where you have a bad day, and, you know, out of the 100 calls, nobody buys. Yep. And all of a sudden, you're, you're off quota. So instead of focusing on the 10 wins, what you can do is you can focus on the losses and say, I know that... For every nine, every nine no's I get, I will get a yes. So mm-hmm. I'm not trying to earn the success. I'm trying to work my way through the, the failure. So let's say you put together a, a little scoreboard every day and you, you, know, you make 90 little boxes. And every time somebody tells you no, you check off a box, right? I like this. Uh, and then you know every time. And that's, it gives you the satisfaction of progress. You, know, you check off boxes. always feels good. So now all of a sudden, every time somebody says no to you, um, it's not just a no, but it's actually another check for your box so you're mm-hmm. progressing your day. And then if you focus on that, just going through that number of calls and that number of rejections, success just happens kind of automatically right. by itself. You don't even have to keep track of, of it. Uh, if you know your numbers better, if you actually knew how much revenue you would make per call, mm-hmm. you could have a little box and like pennies. And every time somebody tells you no, you know, you throw in $2 into the box and you know, I earned another 2 bucks because it brings me closer to you know, a win that's worth X thousands of dollars, whatever right, it is. Right. But you use little, this, these little programs to focus on taking rejection for what it is, which is a stepping stone towards your end goal, mm-hmm. right? And then all of a sudden, it's important because you have to take all these steps to get to your end results versus trying to avoid them and make big jumps to only have successes, only have uh, people saying yes. Yeah, I think this morale management for uh, the day-to-day grind in entrepreneurship is really important. Um, it comes up in a lot of circumstances too, not just sales, like, uh, A-B testing, for example. A-B testing, if you're doing it right, you're probably 75% of your tests close with you learn nothing. 
well, you quote unquote learn nothing, uh, neither a win nor a loss on the test. And of the remaining quarter, you know, half of them are a win, half of them are a loss versus what you had before. And what I always tell people is like, you know, you're not learning nothing if you get a null result on the test. It's you learned one more thing that was not the best thing you could be focusing on right now. So, you know, if you're getting no, it's not not just no. There's a little bit of signal attached to the no, like no, we're not in the market for this, or no, uh, you know, I don't have authority to buy this, or no, the price is too high. And then you know, you can drill down into these later. If you're always getting like no price, no price, no price, then maybe you need to think on your pricing strategy or the positioning of the software to uh, have more value. Yeah. Um, uh, although people won't be telling you no price, <laughs> charge more. Yeah, uh, <laughs> always, got, always double your prices. I got out my catchphrase for the day. We're done. We can <laughs> stop the recording. Yeah. Now, but um, okay. So somebody, we have a low touch SaaS business. Yep. We have leads coming in. Yep. We asked for the phone number. We asked. We asked for. The, so we sent him an email. Yeah. We said, hey. How do you ask for somebody's phone number? So you can have it as part of the form, and we all know that means that conversions will go down. But you actually, you would want to, in the early days, I would I would recommend you to do it regardless of conversion going down or not, okay. because those phone calls are going to be very educational, right? This right. is customer development. You mm-hmm. call people and you actually learn from them. Why? How did they find out about you? What, what do they like? What do they not like? What's important to them? You get a real chance to interact with people and learn beyond just the clicks on a, on a website, yeah. even beyond... Even when they send you an email, in an email I can just write words, but there's a lot of context missing mm-hmm. through tonality, right? I could write saying, you know, this is not for us right now. Now, you don't know anything about how exactly I mean that. Mm-hmm. Did, did I say, this is not for us right now? Mm-hmm. Or did I say, uh, this is not really for us right now, right? These two things point to different opportunities. One seems a lot more hostile, right. somebody that want, doesn't want to be bothered. The other one seems a lot more friendly, mm-hmm. maybe a little hesitant even about his own judgment. So there's different reactions, which in an email, you don't know. Right. And since it's a synchronous kind of contact with them, you can drill into that objection right now. It's yeah. Like, is that this is not for us? Like, we will never be right for this. Yeah. Or is that more of a timing thing? Like, is there, you know, something happened at work? I can emphasize with that. I run a small business myself. Would it be better if I got in touch with you two weeks from now? Exactly. Or even if you just say, oh, how come? And the person says, well, your website promised X, but I, you know, I found out your product does something totally different. That's valuable. Wow. Yeah. If you hear that more than once, you know, we better change the, better change the, website. <laughs> the website, right? Versus mm-hmm. if you only get two emails that say it's not for us, you have not really learned that much. Yeah. There's still a lot of assumption that needs to happen. You have to assume and, you know, interpret what that could mean. And particularly in less technical markets, uh, I find that, uh, so I sell to office managers for a large portion of a reminder, and uh, these are not naturally like loquacious on the internet kind of people. So they tend to write very short, clipped emails, and when I get cancellation reasons from them, which I ask for when folks cancel the trial, it's often like two to three words. Yeah. Um, even you know, if they could write less than that, they would, but uh, <laughs> it uh, bounces their cancel if they don't write at least 10 characters. And yeah. so folks for it will write like, you know, didn't work for us or uh, too expensive or yada, yada. It's like, wait, would love to have a deeper conversation about this, which if I was on the phone with them, we would, by the nature of that, be having a deeper yeah. conversation. So so in the early days, I would actually tell everybody to ask for a phone number and don't worry about the conversion rate so much. And then call these people and have a conversation with them. Welcome them to the trial, right? Okay, we've called folks. We're welcoming them to the trial. Yeah. And then, you know, you can do some very simple things. You can say, hey, I want to welcome you to the trial so that you just signed up. 
and just wanted to hear, how did you hear about us? Mm-hmm. You know, what do you want to get out of the trial? And what's your primary goal? I want to make sure that you get the most out of the trial. I want to make sure that this is going to be a success uh, for you. You're going to get value out of the trial, out of the investment of time in our product, right? And then you have people tell you, you know, I heard about you from a friend or I heard you about you from this or that website. It's always good to know. Right. And then they tell you, you know, our situation is we're looking for a product and it needs to do this and this, so we wanted to check it out. And usually the first kind of bit of information you get is really valuable, but there's so much more to dig into, right? Mm-hmm. So they tell you, let's say, you know, we sell sales software. So they say, well, we're just ramping up our sales efforts, so we're looking into systems. That's obviously not enough information for me to really know who they are, understand if our product is a good fit, mm-hmm. and see if I can point them in the right direction for them to get the value out of it and become a customer. So I would ask, oh, tell me about it. What kind of sales do you guys do? How many salespeople do you have? What are some of the challenges, some of the goals that you have? I want to, you know, we're going to dig into this right. to really understand your situation. Mm-hmm. And this is not just about selling them. It might be that you find out, oh, wow, within the first three minutes, you should not be using my product. Yep. Like, this will never work for you. This is a great opportunity to turn something negative around into something positive and tell somebody honestly, listen, after hearing what you're telling me, you shouldn't be using us. Our product is better for a different use case. Mm-hmm. But here, I'm going to point you in the right direction. I'm going to give you a recommendation for something else. Yep. I've, had this, uh, I've done this before, and it's both the right thing to do. It buys goodwill with people, and you'll be surprised how often folks will like try to try to toss you a bone on that sort of thing. Like I've had a customer, a prospect for point reminder, I was on a phone call with her, and let's say that I largely sell to little fish and then trout, and she was like, yeah, I represent a whale, a big, big white whale. And in the first three minutes, it was like, we don't really whale hunt here. Um, but I happen to know, you know, there's a well-regarded company that's uh, our main competitor, which they, they go after whales, and that's all they do. I happen to know, you know, I know one guy at that company socially. Let me give you his direct number, and you can give him a call. I'm sure he can set you up with something. And she was really happy about that. Uh, She's in a medical profession, so she knows other people in the medical profession. And when her friends who are not whales uh, say, I called, you know, the big 800-pound gorilla, and they didn't even want to talk to me. She's like, I know somebody who will take care of you. And she sends them an email and and copies me on it. It's like, hey, meet Patrick. He's the best guy. He's the best guy in this. He will take care of you, blah, blah, blah. And so... Telling her, this is not going to work out. I'm not going to waste your time on uh, time on this. I'm just going to get you a more successful resolution with my uh, loyal competitor here. Telling her no has raised my sales by uh, 300 bucks a month these days. Yeah. So, yeah. And this is not a single... I've seen, this, I've seen this work in so many different companies. People are just blown away when you tell them no. When you yeah. tell them you should not buy. People are so positively surprised by that interaction that they'll try to do something good for you. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's crazy. Sometimes people will not take that no for an answer. Right. They'll say, no, no but I really think we this. qualify for yeah. this and I really want to buy this now from you. And you say, well, 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 I mean, I'm trying to do what's right for you. And then they'll try to convince you why they will qualify for the product in just a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we tell people, hey, if you have less than X you know, amount of leads a year, you just use a whiteboard or a spreadsheet. There's, you know, you don't need a CRM at that stage. Mm-hmm. And then they'll challenge us on that and say, well, but we communicate a lot with our customers and we're going to grow and I want to use the right solution. You guys are awesome. And they're going to fight you to buy your product. And, and sometimes we turn people down and then we saw them just self-sign up, put in a credit card and buy regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, so people are not used to that and will make a big mark. It will make a big difference. And it's the right thing to do. Yeah. 
right? And for a SaaS business anyways, you don't want customers that are going to churn, they're going to create a lot of support and then churn a few weeks after because right. it's not I the right fit. And I think this is the fundamental thing that engineers do not get about sales. It's not about like just extracting monies from people's pockets unwillingly. Uh, that's theft. It's uh, a great business model until you're thrown in jail. But, uh, you know, we're, you know, we're doing value creating businesses. And for a lot of markets, a lot of customers, they don't naturally seek out stuff or they would not be, there's the classical SaaS model where it's just low touch and they have to generate all the forward motion in the relationship doesn't result in success for them, doesn't result in success for their companies, doesn't get them the best solution that's out there on the market. So you kind of need to nudge them in the direction of success a little bit. It's not, you know, that has as a side effect nudging a little bit more money towards your pocket, but it's money that you're getting for providing the value creating service that you got into the business for doing and for creating the best outcome for them. By oftentimes the job of sales guy at a company isn't so much, you know, there's the selling the person you're talking to, but often you have to kind of like organize them a little bit about, you know, how to buy the product. Um, An example, something I did over email and it's something that I automated later was uh, somebody said, I'm going to be the end user of point reminder. They never use those words, but end user, someone who's actually pushing the keys in any given day. I'm going to use this. I'm the person who's going to own the system. Uh, but my boss is the person who has the credit card. And my boss has said, if you want to buy this software, I need to see the ROI for it. And the office manager says, uh, I, not being a businessman myself, do not really understand this ROI thing or how to calculate it. I Googled it. Wikipedia was kind of confusing. Can you calculate the ROI for me? And I said, well, I am a businessman, and uh, I love math. Sure, I would be happy to calculate the ROI for you. <laughs> and so, you know, that gets her over an internal objection. Like, I'm not selling her. I'm basically selling her boss by proxy, by giving her the, the ammunition she needs to make that sale to the boss. So that's one kind of, like, oh yeah, absolutely. sales I mean, 201, I guess. Uh, yeah. yeah. Empowering people to be your champion internally. Yeah, empowering champions internally to go through to successfully navigate the internal sales process mm-hmm. to enable the organization to purchase your product. Yeah. I think that coming back to that initial call, even if you're like, well, I know nothing about sales, mm-hmm. you don't need to. All you need to do is pick up the phone, call people, be nice to them, say, hey, welcome. Welcome is all it takes. Welcome to our product. Welcome to the trial. Right? Mm-hmm. And then ask them what their goals, what their motivations, what their needs are, and try to really get to a level of understanding. Yeah. And I think engineers are actually really good at that, mm-hmm. right? Better than the average person of not just taking the first layer of information and mm-hmm. set, being satisfied by the dramatic extrapolation of that that they make in their own mind, but actually asking, well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you really mean by that? Oh, what do you guys really try to accomplish with this or that? Mm-hmm. And get to a point where, you know, they didn't just paint the outline, but they actually painted the entire picture for you. And now, once you know what, who the customer is, what they need, what they want, what they try to accomplish, what internal challenges they have, selling should be as easy as enabling them to accomplish all these things with your product. Mm-hmm. You know, and tell them, well, you come, came to the right place. You know, I'm happy to tell you, if you do X and Y, you're going to get Y outcome, which is what you really want, mm-hmm. what you really desire. Right. And I can help you accomplish that. Here's what we need to do to get that done. That's all it takes to be successful at sales. We're telling them, well, you came to the wrong place, but mm-hmm. let me help you, you know, get there anyway. So in the happy case situation where our product is a good fit for them, we've talked a little bit about, okay, you know, I understand, uh, by the way, echoing people's words at them is a really effective communication te- technique in general and works in sales as well. Yeah. To say, yeah, I understand that you're really looking to decrease your no-show rate by adopting the software. I understand that 
you know, you guys run a sales process which has 25 people in three time zones and the management is getting crazy. I understand that, dot, 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 whatever the pain point is. As it turns out, our software is actually a great fit for that. We have features X and Y and Z, which will you know, get you up and running pretty quickly. And I'm happy to assist you with doing that. Then the, the scary part to the engineer mind kind of comes up to me. Uh, there's that closing thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so cliff notes on like every sales conversation ever. It's like conversation, conversation, conversation. Station. And then what we would call in marketing a call to action at the end. Yep. And in sales, they have the thing with the call to close instead. What does what is closing and how do we do it? It's a great question. So closing, so first of all, let me tell you, if you ask for the close, which is basically asking the other party to become a customer, commit, give you their credit card number, whatever it is, the transactional point in which mm -hmm. they become a customer. If you ask them for that, if you proactively verbalize, do you want to become a customer? Do you want to purchase our product? You separated yourself already from you know the majority of the market or even the majority of salespeople that are they, they do quote-unquote sales but are afraid of asking the question because they are mm -hmm. afraid to hear the rejection, mm -hmm. right? So there's two ways to do it. If you don't want to – there's two simple ways to do it. One is just to ask for it, you know. Let's all do it together. Do you want to become a customer of our product, right? Do, do you, you want to become a customer of our product? Is there you go. Easy? Wow. There you go. I might – <laughs> huh. I think I must have said something like that for consulting engagements over the years. I think I've probably said it only twice for a point of reminder. Yeah. It's, it's kind of crazy. It's crazy, right? Mm -hmm. um, and in certain cases where it's clearly that they're not going to be ready to answer it yet, right? It's the first call. They tell you they have like a 200-person team and it's a bigger customer and you just answered a couple of basic questions. They don't yet they're not yet there to be able to say yes or no to that mm -hmm. question. What you ask instead, which is one of the most powerful questions you could ever ask is, what is it going to take for you to become a customer of ours? It's a very important question, mm -hmm. especially for startups, especially when you're early in the cycle. Mm -hmm. Too many times I see founders, they talk to a bunch of quote-unquote potential customers, mm -hmm. do their customer development, you know, lean, lean startup, and then they come back and they say, oh, I've got all these great feedback, people loving this idea. Yep. They're totally going to buy it. And you know, more often than not, just because I was nice to you doesn't mean I have real buying intent. Right. Right? Just because I visited your site and liked you know, an article doesn't mean I'm going to purchase the software. Mm -hmm. So asking me, hey, what is going to actually take for you to become a customer is going to do a couple of things. Number one, if I have zero buying intent, I'm going to probably say it. I'm going to say, well, either I'm going to have a really weak answer to that, like, uh, I don't know. That's a red flag. Yeah. How could you not know, <laughs> right, uh, what it would take for you to buy? Or they say, well, you know, I really like what you do, but we wouldn't buy before 2018. I mean, our budget is already allocated for the next few years. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, oh, nice guy, but I shouldn't probably waste my time on this. Right. Or one of the other classic things is, yeah, we don't. We don't have budget. We're, you know, we're a startup too. We're trying to get to ramen profitability. Like, I just can't justify fifty or hundred bucks or whatever. And you're yeah, like, yeah, great. Oh, well. <laughs> it was great talking to you. Yeah. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, work myself into a, into conniption if we don't get the sale here. Yeah, and we're we're not gonna schedule three follow up calls each an hour and send you ten emails and case studies to then realize what we could have learned in the first, you know, twenty minutes. Then <laughs> you are not in the market to purchase something. This process, by the way, is called lead qualification. You can do very automatically qualification called like lead scoring, for example. Yeah. Uh, SaaS companies typically would do things like, you know, if in the free trial they've done X and Y and Z, then they have a higher score. If they've done nothing, then they have a lower score. Or maybe demographic-based lead qualification, like 
If they work for Boeing, higher score for enterprise sales lead qualification. If they work for a flower shop, you're probably not going to sell them a hundred thousand dollars software solution. Yeah. Anyhow, but this, you know, you can just qualify stuff with the phone call, and then rather than feeding into some sort of magic state machine, just you know, use your your human intuition and your human brain and take next steps appropriately. Yeah. So and, and important with that question when you ask, hey, what would it take for you to become a customer? Mm-hmm. Is to actually follow up on that question until the virtual event happened where they purchased. So let's say they say, well, I really like this. I will bring this back to my team and we'll talk about it and then see what they think. Oh, interesting. What would happen if they actually liked the initial kind of outline of what you gave them? What would happen next typically? Mm-hmm. Well, next we would probably schedule another call and have some more stakeholders participate and ask questions. Cool. And let's say I answer those questions to the satisfaction of all the stakeholders. What usually happens next? Mm-hmm. Right? You don't just stop at some point. You actually continue asking, well, what happens next? Well, next you would have to talk to the legal department and go through a procurement process. Mm-hmm. Most people at some point are kind of instinctively want to just take that and run with it and go, okay, cool. Well, uh, thanks for all the information. They hang up and they think they already know everything. Mm-hmm. Don't. Fight that urge. Ask. Right. So we go through legal. We go through procurement. By the way, have you done this with any other provider that's similar to us in the last one or two years successfully? Mm-hmm. Yep. Right? That's a good, good indicator. <laughs> that, that is actually... a great qualification question. Right? You never want to be someone's first SaaS provider. You also <laughs> probably never want to be someone's first consultant. Yeah. Your life will you be very difficult. You don't, right? So have you done this before and what was the process like and is there anything we can learn from that? Mm-hmm. But, but okay, let's say we do these things. What happens next? Well, then, you know, you have to... Go talk to my grandmother and then the palm reader and what until they say, yeah, then we're in business. Cool. <laughs> Which you've accomplished now is a couple of things. Number one, you've seen if there's any red flags in that process that you know will never work out. Right. Number two, you mentally put them in the mind space you want them in. It's kind of a future where they're a customer. This mm-hmm. is the kind of future you want them to be thinking about. They're already visualizing the that there exists a possible alternate universe in which they write you a check. <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing. Cards. That's yep. a good thing. And then uh, the third thing is they created together with you a roadmap of the buying process. Mm-hmm. So now you know everything it's going to take to make that deal happen. You know how many times founders or salespeople will come to me and they will say, next week we're going to close this you know, defining moment deal. This is going to change our life and everything, it's ready and I know it's going to happen next week. And then the next week, a cricket silence. So I send an email and say, what happened with the deal? Did it close? And they say, well, there was this thing that I didn't anticipate. They actually also want me to go through the procurement department. Mm-hmm. How could that be surprising? Right. Right. What that means is you didn't do your job qualifying them, mm-hmm. understanding the buying process. So every step of the way, you're, you're surprised that there's one more thing you have to do. Yep. And you get frustrated by these evil customers that want you to do these unreasonable things. If, if you could see me now, right, guys, I'm, I'm <laughs> face palming because I have been that guy. Yeah. And we all have. We, yep. all, we all have been there. Nobody's above that mistake. Mm-hmm. Right. The question is that there's a simple remedy, a solution to that. You need to go through those steps, ask somebody, hey, what will it take for you to become a customer? Mm-hmm. And have them tell you so you have a real understanding, what will it take for me to close this customer? And do, Am I willing to go through all these steps, invest all this time, and have a realistic picture of what it's going to take? Mm-hmm. Or if you think they're already ready and they love what you're doing, just ask them the question, hey, I mean, it seems like it's a great fit. You're excited. I'm excited. I think this is really a good solution. Are you ready to become a customer today? Should I take your credit card? How are we going to do this? Mm-hmm. This is uncomfortable for folks, right? right? 
because it's kind of confrontational. You, you might have to confront the other person or be confronted by the person saying, saying no, you know, or I'm not ready or mm-hmm. I don't think I'm going to buy. But the great thing about that is that it's, it shouldn't be about you winning everything and never being rejected. It should be about you learning as much as possible. Right. And also about creating outcomes, mm-hmm. right? Sales is a lot about just creating outcomes. Yes, no. It's both an outcome. Maybe is a death trap, right? Maybe is like Amen. it doesn't point in any direction or any time frame. You, mm-hmm. do, you know nothing, mm-hmm. right? And, you, and it occupies mind space and mind share. Yes and no are equally good. They are a result. You can learn from it. You mm-hmm. can check it up. You can put a number somewhere yep. and then you can move on in life. And right. For entrepreneurs, it's so important to be able to move forward and not have things that are in constant limbo. We don't mm-hmm. know about this space, which is a death trap. Mm-hmm. This is um, one of the fundamental things about pipeline management. Uh, pipelines are sort of, it's to a sales process what a funnel is to a marketing process where some amount of folks are in the top, yada, yada. With sales pipelines, it's kind of like we have a certain number of stages that go through our customer's typical buying process. So we have customers who are in any given stage of the buying process. Like there's, you know, we have 20 people who we have initial calls scheduled with. We have six people who we have follow-up calls scheduled with. We have three folks who we are under contract, two folks who we are providing services for, and then one person or firm is services have been provided. We have cut them an invoice. We're waiting on payment. And so the job of the sales team and the rest of the organization really is just pushing people from the left side of the pipeline to the right side of the pipeline. Yep. And one of the reasons that the pipeline thing is important is if there's a bubble at any stage in that process, it's like, yeah, we've got, you know, we've got folks who we're having initial conversations with. We've got folks who we're talking to the purchasing department. We've got folks who we're providing the, the stuff for. We've got folks who our invoices are out. We have no folks who we're having follow-up conversations with right now. And you can kind of figure that bubble is going to like percolate towards the right side of the pipeline. And that sometime in the near future, there's going to be a month with no revenue in it. Yep. And that's going to suck. So (laughs) when you start to identify those bubbles early in the pipeline, you're like, oh, guys, get those, you know, make an extra special effort to get those early conversations happening to push people into, you know, get a yes or get a no, but get stuff on the calendar for having a follow-up conversation so that we can push them through the rest of the pipeline. Yeah. If you manage your pipeline well, you kind of see the future, which Mm -hmm. is part of the beauty of SaaS anyways with subscription revenue. You can kind of see, project what's going to happen next month and month after. But the other thing is like one thing that I find beautiful about sales is that it really rewards people that are and processes that are, you know, results driven and really punishes activity driven people and processes. Mm -hmm. And, too many times I talk to people that will be like, well, we have all these great deals in the pipeline. And I say, awesome. Well, tell me a little bit more about that. Well, there's this company, this company, this company. Cool. How long have you been talking to them? And what are the next steps? And when do you foresee closing these customers or not closing them? And that's when it breaks down. And they're like, well, they're so happy about creating conversations and having meetings and hearing from people that they like what they do, that they don't want to move over to the uncomfortable part, which is actually creating the outcome, like the yes or no. That right. They're very happy about the, I have three logos I can talk, to put on a PowerPoint presentation and then say, we're in, conver- we're in early conversations with these folks. Mm-hmm. Rather than having just one or no logo, and we've learned that this didn't work, what we right. tried, where we had a real result, they bought, they didn't buy. Uh, and sales really rewards outcome-driven activities and managing your pipeline is all about are things actually moving from left to right? Because you can have thousands of things in every stage, but if nothing is moving, your business is dead, right? That's it. You're not not getting any new customers. 
And in addition to sales, rewarding outcome-driven cultures, outcome-driven businesses, outcome-driven individuals, it, it also, I think traditionally sales is like, I guess sales guys stereotypically are smarter than the average pair with regards to numbers, but the numbers are typically tied up in like, what's my commission going to be? Yeah. But like, you know, sales at companies which are very metrics focused, you know, where you can, we know to a T that if we get 100, 100 initial consultations, we're going to get down to 20 meaningful conversations with decision makers, which is going to result in five proposals that we sent out. We're going to close three of them. Folks who have like that level of like understanding of how the math shakes out for the funnel or for the sales pipeline, they'll, they go, they do very well in life. Yeah. Um, so since that's kind of copacetic with the uh, engineering skill set that a lot of people have and the sort of numerically inclined, the numerical inclinations <laughs> of a lot of engineers, it's something that like if you're a product person, talking to people about their pain points and then saying, the pain points which you have just articulated map up with some things we have made. The things we have made can make those pain points better. It's not actually rocket science. This is something that like you can learn to do yeah. and learn to be, knock on wood, a little less uncomfortable with. And um, you can often find out that you're pretty darn good at it. Like, yeah. I don't do it enough for my software products, but in my consulting career, pretty darn good at the at sales, with the exception of the, the ones where it was just like total face plant. <laughs> uh, and, you know, like you said, that's cost of doing business. Yeah. Uh, face planting is better than perpetually like, will I, won't I, will I, won't I win that engagement? You know, get to know. That's if you're not face planting once in a while, no matter how good or successful you are, mm-hmm. you know that you're not you're not learning anything. You're not pushing hard enough. You're not trying things that are daring enough. Right. Um, because you've got comfortable and you're just operating within that comfort zone, which is the borderline of your growth now. You can't go beyond that. So no matter what you do, if you don't have, like, if you don't get rejected once in a while, uh, you know you're in an unhealthy place. You're in a place where not enough growth happens because mm-hmm. you're only, you're confined within what you've accomplished in the past and what you're now good at, mm-hmm. right? Um, this reminds me of a conversation I had with one of my father's buddies when I was, I was like six or seven, and he was a lawyer. I had a vague idea, you know, lawyers take cases to trial. <laughs> and uh, he said, yeah, I'm a very good lawyer. I said, oh, do you win all your cases? He's like, no, of course not. If I won all my cases, I'd be a very bad lawyer. And this was very confusing to the seven-year-old. I'm like, <laughs> why? He's like, well, there's this thing called, you know, making a deal before the case gets to trial. And if you're, if you're winning all your cases, you're making too many deals on cases that you would have won. So you should be a little more aggressive about taking stuff to trial. Like similarly, if you're winning all your sales conversations, like something is going wrong either with the number of leads you're pushing through the sales pipeline or the your lead qualification things. Like, you know, it's possible to win all of your sales conversations by only taking the folks who are like deepest in your ecosystem, they're yeah. your truest and best fans, yeah. totally the sweet spot for the app. It was an easy layup for to get the sales, and you get all those easy layups. But you could maximize revenue for the business by going, okay, what's one ring out from that? Maybe it isn't someone who's been reading my blog for five years. It's someone who's been reading my <laughs> blog for five months. Uh, or, you know, somebody like, sure, we sell this software product to, you know, you do sales SaaS. So assume you sell to a lot of other SaaS startups, but yep. you mentioned uh, you, so you sell to startups selling to, you know, tech companies or whatnot. Yep. And then at some point you realize we could also sell to startups selling to medical that has new challenges. Let's see if we win those deals or let's see why we lose those deals. We'll, you know, feed that back into the marketing and the product, get into a place where we can win those and, you know, take the lumps because we know we're learning from them. Yeah, absolutely. So coming back 
first call, you pick up, you welcome people, you ask them a few questions to really understand them, mm-hmm. and then you either ask them if, they're, if they think they're going to buy, if they're ready to buy, or what it's going to take to buy. If you do these things, mm-hmm. it's a perfect sales call. Right. right? You're 10 out of 10. doesn't matter. Like if, and you're already better than 90% oh, of the market. Yeah. It's insane. Oh, yeah. So you do that for a while, and maybe you want at some point to test what would happen if you don't take their phone number in the forum, but you actually email them and ask mm-hmm. them for a call. Yep. And, and look at the, the numbers. But in the early days, I would always use that form. And either way, if you have a SaaS business and you have a way to make more than just like $10 a month on a user, mm-hmm. using the phone as a, as a way to onboard them, activate them, and close them mm-hmm. um, is going to be a, an amazing tool. And if you don't use that, you're literally leaving thousands, of money millions. You're losing, you're losing a lot of money and leaving a lot of money on the table. Right. Additional thing there, by the way, relevant to your interests, if like me, you're pretty time constrained on the SaaS business. I specifically architected my business when I was early on to never require sales calls because I was employed over in Japan and didn't want to do sales calls at 2 a.m. I still don't want to do sales calls at 2 a.m., but let's say I have you know availability for, well, I can push myself to make five a week and then not as many as leads I'm getting. You can you know just choose to only call X percent and then do the scalable approaches on the remainder and then see, okay, for the folks I talk to, did I close more than we close yeah. on the folks that we don't talk to? If not, red flag on the plane. <laughs> Figure <laughs> out the sales process. If you close more, then that's either you know an argument with yourself or with the rest of the business for we should be focusing a little more of our attention on uh, active selling to uh, the, the rest of the folks. Or it's an opportunity, um, Atlassian does this, if they, uh, they have a sales team, they say they don't have a sales team. They have a sales team. It's people who call yeah. and get closes. Yeah. Um, but if you know a medium touch approach for them in a given month converts a higher percentage of trials than the low touch approach, the totally scalable automated thing, they file bugs against the low touch approach, and they say something has happened such that you know our standard medium uh, approach is answering more customer questions, resolving more customer objections, getting more customers successfully onboarded than the low touch approach, which means the low touch approach is broken. Fix it. And then they, you know, fix it until the numbers go back to parity again. And then they, you know, focus on that because that's part of the business that they really enjoy slice institutionally like. And then a couple of months later, it's like, okay, I'm going to pull 10% of the trials off the rack and give them a call and see what the conversion rate is. And if it's, you know, if it's at parity with the low touch approach, that's great. That's where we want it to be. If it isn't, you know, if, if the sales reps are effective at doing their jobs, that's a book. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's a great, that's a great hack. Yeah. Organizationally. That's yeah. cool. And that's, um, I think that's why they, they say like, we don't really have a sales team because they do have a sales team. Like, God, I love you guys, but you have a sales team. But, um, <laughs> you know, maybe they think it's not like a, a permanent sales team. It's just they're bug scouts in the organization who happen to do sales for a bit of that bug discovery process. Yeah. Anyhow. So I think that wraps up our conversation on getting started with sales for SaaS folks. You guys had a very interesting trajectory, and it's one that I think resonates with a lot of people here. Well, you had Y Combinator Fund startup that was in kind of an unrelated space. And then you pivoted over to um, being like sales consulting as a service. And then from that consulting business, you pivoted into the current product business, which is closed.io, the CRM. Can you talk a little bit about, hey, your your consulting business, which, that was a pretty good business, right? Yeah. Like, just like hum a few bars for me on that one. How many people did it get up to or yada so, yada? Uh, so we had probably all in all uh, in-house plus the, the people that were working from other locations, maybe 60. 
we were on trajectory to kind of cross the three-digit people very, very uh, soon. We were, you know, a multi-million dollar business that was growing really fast. And basically what we did is we built kind of what we called a, a sales a secret sales lab in the heart of Silicon Valley. <laughs> we, we would work with venture-backed startups that at least had a Series A and were doing B2B. The vast majority, 80% of our customers were SaaS <laughs> products. Many of them, you products that you guys know, have bought, and we would, you know, either do um, sales consulting, mm-hmm. what we would call sales exploration, kind of try and help you figure out how to go from a few customers and some revenue to a model that's both predictable and scalable, where mm-hmm. you can just plug in salespeople and you know exactly what should come out of that, mm-hmm. and. Um, so we had these customers where it was a lot of consulting, helping them, exploring, testing different sales strategies, generating numbers, and then looking at that and figuring out what the right model is for them. Mm-hmm. And then we had a few customers that were already on scale, companies that are now about to IPO and on the IPO track that would say, hey, we have you know already 50, 60 salespeople. We're hiring as quickly as we can. And there's these 10 verticals we're not going to get mm-hmm. to in the next two years. But we know there's money. <laughs> so... Uh, can we, we just write you a check? And can you, we just and, write and you a check and send you the leads and you just close these deals for us? Mm-hmm. So we had these two kind of like the scale, the outsource scaling part and then the more kind of early stage consulting part. Right. And, uh, and, and became kind of experts when it comes to selling for startups and the unique challenges and unique uh, approaches that you can have when you do that. Mm-hmm. One of the nice things about the Valley and... I'm a bootstrapped guy. I think that's what makes me happiest. But every time I come out to the Valley, we're physically in Palo Alto right now. It's like, ooh, this, there's sort of an air here. <laughs> but one of the things that causes the air is that there's like an ecosystem around startups where, you know, you guys have a very, very successful business. So, so okay, professionally, well, you already said the word millions. It's, it's a lot of millions if you're up to 60. You're making millions a year doing like basically being like the outsourced sales department for a lot of these folks or telling them how to set up their first sales department. But similarly, there's a lot of like businesses in the ecosystem out here. You know, there's there's shops. Um, I don't know if Pivotal's in the Valley, but they do a lot Sounds of things cool. where, yeah. you know, yeah, somebody raises, uh, you know, somebody raises money. They need to make an app or they have an existing website. They need to make an iPhone app and Pivotal's like, we can take care of that. And it'll only cost you $200,000 um, <laughs> or that sort of thing. There's. Something that I get told every time I come out here is that, um, you know, given my skill set with the marketing automation, could just hang out my shingle as being like the, the Patio 11 marketing automation agency, and I would have billings of $5 million within like a year. And, and that's true. Um, not really where I want to go with my life, but it's, you know, a nice card in the back pocket if uh, my family's <laughs> ever starving in the snow. You know, there's a lot of businesses like that. And yep. it's not just folks deride this as, selling shovels in the gold dress. It's not. It's B2B services. That's kind of the the nature of most of the business in the economy. If you get right down to it, you know, you're you're selling tomatoes to pizzerias. (laughs) (laughs) Software as service companies have a very predictable, like the reason this works is software as service companies have a super predictable path from really intelligent sales guy to money. Just like, you know, their customers have a really predictable path from install software as a service product, increase revenues by 20%. Similarly for the other stuff. So anyhow, you had a really, really successful consulting business. Why don't we still have a really successful, a successful consulting business? Why, like, can you talk about the, the journey that got you to close yeah. IO? So that's a great question. So when we started, you know, right from the get-go, there were two factors that play into our decision to actually 
build an internal product. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, you know, we knew that in order to support all these different sales campaigns for different customers to different verticals, there's a lot of complexity involved. So we knew that we would have to use software to manage all that. And just selfishly, we hated all CRM systems and all quote-unquote sales software that was out there and thought, no way we're going to spend you know, eight, nine hours a day using that kind of software. It's just going to make our life suck. Mm-hmm. So we didn't want to use anything that was out there. And then two of my co-founders, we have three co-founders. I'm more the sales business guy and the other two guys are product engineering people. So out of that lens and bias, we're like, well, let's just build our own thing. And mm-hmm. we're going to make it exactly do what we want it to do. And that was it. There was no real vision. We didn't even know what that meant. Like, we didn't even know exactly what the product will look like. We just said, let's just build something that does what we want. And then, all right, what do we want? Well, we now have two customers after two weeks, and we need to do this and this. Well, maybe it would be cool if it could just I click a number and it calls it so I don't have to use a phone or something else to do it. It does it in the software. Mm-hmm. And that's how we got started. And then as we started hiring and recruiting more and more people, we would use the software as a recruiting tool. We would tell people, hey, and we have this secret sauce Mm -hmm. that if you do sales for another business, you won't have, and I'll show it to you. And you can clearly tell that we really care building products for salespeople to be more successful. Right. So you, the sales guy, should work with us. You will have access to the secret sauce. Your job will suck less because there's none of that using crappy software all day to do the job of sales guys basically, you know, wall-to-wall calls and then recording the calls in the software. So the part of the, your job that is not the call sucks less. Yep. And then if this makes you more successful, your sales guy, typically there's some sort of incentive, incentive structure there. This will directly impact the bottom line for you. Yeah. So it's basically B2B sales to a single person. Exactly. Uh, so so yeah, um, help us hire a lot of people. Help us uh, make our salespeople more successful and then happier, retain them also mm-hmm. uh, at a much higher rate than a typical sales organization will retain people. Mm-hmm. And then what happened is that slowly but surely, we had more and more campaigns with more and more salespeople. And we were the, I think we we're the only, well, not I think, I know we're the only CRM system or sales software company that literally had engineers sitting in a room next to salespeople mm-hmm. that were doing different kinds of sales. Yep. And looking over their shoulders and going, why are you doing this? It makes no sense. Why do you have to click through? Or why do you use this piece of paper all day long Mm -hmm. to make notes? Why can't our software be better at that? And fixing problems. As well as having salespeople turn around and be like, well, that part of your software sucks, dude. Like, Mm -hmm. I hate that this does this. And iterate on it from a completely different perspective. This doesn't happen nearly enough at companies, by the way, guys. Like, uh, engineers embedded in a sales organization or embedded in a marketing organization like believe me if you have if you can code your way out of a paper bag walk into for those of you who don't run your own businesses yet and just want to get the get the taste of like coding to improve outcomes walk into any other team at the company and say can i just like watch what you do for a day and at the end of the day you're gonna like have a notebook full of (laughs) wtf they they do what with spreadsheets (laughs) that's insane yeah that's like (laughs) Man, uh, what was it back in the day? I was working with an SEO who was attempting to figure, for some SEO-related reason, I have a list of keywords in column A, I have a list of keywords in column B, and I'm going to figure out all the keywords that are in A but not in B. And every engineer in the room is like, okay, that'll take me like two minutes. This guy, college graduate, would literally spend several hours every day doing this like manual keyword comparison. Like, we can literally, like, this, this script 
it's, we're, we're going to save you two hours of your, every day for forever in like five minutes. It's going to be great. If you want, I can also alphabetize them. It's not hard. Uh, but yeah, um, so more product devs, like more product companies should, should go with the, you know, embed the product team in the target organization and see what's broken. What's broken. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Build much better stuff. So, so something a great way to do that, by the way. Yes. Yeah, yeah. so, so, so we did that for a while and then we actually started having a real product philosophy and started thinking, this is how sales software actually should look like. Forget about everything that's out there. It's not really helping anybody mm-hmm. selling better. So this is what sales software look like. And sales really is communication. So it needs to be communication software. And, you know, let's kill data entry because it sucks and mm-hmm. salespeople are horrible at it. So it produces a lot of bad data. And, you know, let's empower then the people to actually tap, get all the answers they have through the software versus having to go to engineering and be like, well, I need this specialized list of all leads that have, you know, been called but, and emailed but haven't replied. But I don't get all that data from my sales software. So can you write a, you know, query in MySQL and find all that data for me and spend 30 minutes of your life doing that? And then I'll come back tomorrow with another list. Mm-hmm. And I was just... Engineers got, went, well, why the hell is the software not answering that question? Like, why do I have to spend my time doing this manually? Yep. So step by step, we developed this philosophy, and then the software got better, and then mm-hmm. it got a lot better. And then all of a sudden, our salespeople would show their friends who were in sales the software, mm-hmm. bragging about, this is what we use for our job. And we would start getting emails or our salespeople would come and say, hey, we could totally sell the software to this company. <laughs> you know, I showed it to them. They're totally interested. And... I have to say that you know it would be cool to just claim the credit for that and say, and then I decided as the CEO that this is the future of the business. But it wasn't like I actually resisted that a lot. Yeah, because I was like, well, we're printing money over here, and this is actually a complex business to grow, and I have a lot of things on my plate. Anyways, right. like we're gonna get distracted with this, like releasing the software as a product. So that external demand grew. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the internal resistance started building. Like, there was a small group of people internally that started lobbying. Like, we should release the software. The software. We should really release the software. Let's just launch the software. We should, in every meeting, in every opportunity, they will lobby, hey, the software, the software. And those two voices from the outside inside grew and grew and grew until I caved. Like, literally, that's what it was. It was no strategic decision-making. Literally, it just went, well, fuck it. Let's launch the software then eventually. Right? And I thought... Because the services business was big, and I thought that I knew we had something special mm-hmm. with the software. But I knew I also I'm a realist, so I knew this market is crowded as hell. It's mm-hmm. a very competitive market, and we're not we don't have like ton of money to just spend on this experiment. Mm-hmm. So we would have to have a small team work on it. So I thought it would take forever for the software to get anywhere near the services and consulting business. So in January 2015, I said, you know what? This is a, a small team of four people. Mm-hmm. You guys are the product team now. Go do whatever the hell you want. Launch it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as an entrepreneur, I like to say you're almost always wrong with everything. Uh, just get used to that. And once in a while, you're actually happy you're wrong. And this was one of those cases yeah. where the software had a great first month and then it had a great second month and then it had an even better third month and it just grew and grew and grew at a really fast pace Mm -hmm. with very little resources and then, you know, very quickly it outgrew the services business with a fraction of the cost. Yep. And at that point or coming near to that point, it was long clear to us, well, 
There, we have something that's working way better than this other thing we had that was working. Mm-hmm. So we should start focusing more and more of our attention on the software versus uh, the consulting business. Right, right. Um, two things I want to drill into there. One was that, uh, well, let me take the one that was more recent first because I actually remember it. So you mentioned that the software business was, the revenues were rapidly approaching the consulting business, but at a uh, lower cost. That's kind of like the traditional margins in consulting are generally, broadly speaking, somewhere in the uh, 20 to 40% range, give or take. Like the single biggest cost for the uh, consulting companies is the the direct cost of the person who is doing the actual work that gets billed out to the client. And that cost is always going to be in there, always going to be the largest cost of the consulting company. Yep. And it generally, like there's not much you can do to reduce it. And, well, you can hire less senior people, but then you get less senior results. And then that, that does not build wonderful software, com- um, wonderful consulting companies. And um, on the flip side, like software as a service, huge upfront cost to develop it. And then you push the go button and you start getting literally 90 plus percent margins on software and a little less for the two of us because both of us have telephony embedded and there's like a hard cost associated with telephony. So we have non-zero costs, cost of goods sold, which means how much money you spend to, for a marginal customer to actually service them. But like for many P2P SaaS businesses, it's literally like our cost of goods sold is the strike account. So 2.9% plus 30 cents. And then the rest of the 500 bucks every month, we just keep. And then, you know, multiply yeah. that by a thousand, a thousand clients. Life gets pretty good. Yep. But yeah, so, okay, so you have the ridiculously successful business. You have the software business that you, like, okay, is an experiment. It wasn't like a let's dive two feet into that. It's just I'm going to break off a, break off a strike team to do the, the SaaS business. And, oh, my God, it's blowing up. Yep. We have one really successful business. We have a nascent business, which looks like it has more legs than even the most successful business. How do you decide to like make that, you know, make the transition? Cause that's not a no risk transition. You know, yep. You're the math of working in successful consultancy is that after you have a successful consultancy, dot, 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 you have a successful consultancy. So FYI, when I say that the margin for a consulting business is like 20 to 40%, if you multiply 20 to 40% by the billings for the given year, which you can extrapolate from them having 60 sales guys, that's like literally what they could pull out of the business every year with like no work that they're not additionally doing. But you decide to double down and go in on a VC funded SaaS business trajectory, which has substantially more execution risk. Yeah. Um, well, let me elaborate a little bit on this. Sure. Uh, so, so I don't want, I don't want to come off too one dimensionally in that like everything was just amazingly successful. And now like, how can you decide between amazing success, and incredible success, right? Yeah. That was our problem. It was not. It was not as simple as that. The consulting business was successful, but it was also freaking hard. Yeah, painful, and you had to manage. At some point, we had to manage kind of cash flow at a level that we had no clue what we were doing. Yeah, and also there's just there's periods where you can't keep up with the demand, mm-hmm. and then there's periods in our business where there's zero demand. Like December, for mm-hmm. instance, last two weeks of December, first week of January. There's no sales happening mm-hmm. during that time. So all the customers you would close, we would close in the last the last quarter of the year. We would close to start of at the late of the second quarter of the year, right? Mm-hmm. So you have kind of certain bubbles where sales don't happen as much or selling is not as effective in B2B. Yep. And you still have all the headcount. You still have all the employees. They still right. get their salary. Their, their so, paychecks are due on the 15th and 25th. 
every month, rain or shine. Every month, doesn't matter what, what happens. So once you're at, a, at the highest scale of revenue, you manage cash flows at a level where we were just not equipped to. And we made some mistakes and that got us in you know, really tough waters at, at times and it just created stress. Yep. Yeah. So cash that, flow stress is, um, I work with, well, work with, I'm buddies with a lot of folks who run uh, multi-member consultancies and single biggest stress factor probably like yeah. the real employees cost money and you know you got to make their salaries every two weeks and the the life cycle of uh, uh billings and consultancies typically does not line up with that and so it's often even for very successful companies like you know great team 20 people working for it best brand in the business yada yada they don't know whether they can make payroll four weeks from now it's kind of insane yeah um, and that happens in solo consultancies too i had I had instances where it was like I had like, you know, to get a particular engagement, I had run up like the cost of my wedding on, you know, prospecting trips to America. And then I was holding the other hand an invoice for the same amount of money. So, you know, <laughs> and it was like, okay, race, does the credit card go over the limit first or does the invoice clear first? And then that happened several times over like a two year period much more stress than running a SaaS business has ever been for me. Yeah. But so, yeah. so, so that was a big part. So there's a lot of stress involved in that business. There's also, as we were growing, it became, that stress became more painful. Um, you had to deal with a lot more kind of, you know, management issues, you know, cultural issues, human resources, just keeping the entire thing af- afloat and running mm-hmm. was just a very, very hard business. Yeah. And so, so that played a really big part. And then, you know, at the end of the day, as an entrepreneur, you only have so much time. You only have, you know, so many hours in the day, so many opportunities that you're going to follow. You can't do everything. So you have to make decisions on, like, do I want to spend all my life chasing this opportunity or that? And when you see, when, when you see, when you, one business is literally like pushing a little stone up a mountain and it gets bigger and bigger, but it gets harder and harder and more painful. And the other business is tipping the little stone down the mountain and it just naturally gains more and more momentum. Mm-hmm. It's clear where the opportunity, you know, momentum is the signal and mm-hmm. th- that you should follow as an entrepreneur. So for us, it was just clear. We loved our product. We loved the services business, but we also kind of were burned out yeah. after, after a few of those highs and lows and high, crazy highs and lows. Mm-hmm. So I think when we saw that software business take off at that pace, you know, were multiple things that happened. Number one, we were, we were thinking, okay, this is clearly something that could be a massive success and has this natural momentum in the market. Mm-hmm. So we better focus on helping that become all it can be. And yeah. we can just split our attention. And there was this also a certain level of relief of saying, wow, what would a world look like where all we do is software? Yep. Right? And we don't have to manage this crazy amount of overhead and crazy amount of cash flow. Like it's subscription revenue. Mm-hmm. And you, as you said, you add more customers. You don't necessarily have to add more cost immediately. Right. right? So you, you eventually... You Often have a, more customers don't translate into more work or more yeah. stress either. It's just yeah. like, you know, as long as the server is up, it's equally up no matter whether there's 100 people paying you a month or 1,000 people yeah, paying you. exactly. So... For a while, again, not to say that any of these decisions were easy or super clear to us. Mm-hmm. For a while, there was this, again, this back and forth of thinking, well, should we hold on to both things? Mm-hmm. And I wanted to, like just emotionally, I would, would have liked holding on to both businesses. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, as time goes by, it's clearer and clearer that it's irresponsible to try to do that. And all of a sudden, you start wondering, what could we actually do on the software side if, we, if I didn't spend 80% of my time managing the other business? Yeah. 
and and you start feeling you start feeling like you have two relationships where you're equally irresponsible to both parties and don't make the necessary investment in them to help them become really all they could be. So you have to make a choice and say, I'm going to commit fully to one or the other. Uh, it's unfair to both to try to hold on to both things. So, you know, and once you have to make that decision, now you have to decide, what do you do with all these employees, mm-hmm. right? Which ones can actually transition over to people that are going to work on the software business? And what do you do with the amazing people that can't? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really where, why it's so hard to let go because you're like, well, we've built this amazing group of people and mm-hmm. talent. We would never want to let them go, but we can also hold on to everybody. It makes no sense. Mm-hmm. So that's also one of the uh, not so hidden advantages of the valley, which is you know, in a lot of other locales, like the surrounding ecosystem couldn't exactly conveniently absorb sixty yep. very, very well trained SaaS sales guys. Yep. Where in the valley, like I don't know how you actually managed it, but I'm presuming you know sixty very trained, very effective sales guys could all get jobs within what a week. So not all 60 were in-house. The, the team okay. that was in-house was much smaller. We're talking 25, 30, so half of that. Sure. But all of these people had got jobs in the Valley. A majority of them are directors of sales, VPs of sales, mm-hmm. of, you know, high growth, amazing companies. So, and a lot of them became you know, managers or, or executives at companies that were our customers, yep. naturally, right? So we made sure that everybody got an amazing opportunity and used mm-hmm. kind of what they learned with our business mm-hmm. to take the next step in their career. In many cases, with companies they were doing sales for anyways. Right. right? This is a fairly common trajectory in consulting, by the way. Uh, I know some folks in the audience might not know this, but uh, employers often say, you know, we've gotten used to working with Bob over the last two years. He's been instrumental in our blah, blah, blah efforts. Can we... For an ongoing consultancy, there's often a discussion between like the consult consultancy and the client. Like, can we? I hate this word. Buy Bob from you, or yeah. you know, yeah. work out an arrangement where we can recruit him without uh, violating our various covenants that are in place. Yeah, and so yeah, it's great if you can uh, get people a bigger existing clients like a satisfactory resolution. It's like nothing changes about your business aside from you know, rather than cutting us a check and paying us half the money. You just hire on the uh, guys who had working on sales uh, directly, and you know now yeah. you're their employer of record. Congrats! Yeah. Um, so I'm really proud of that transition mm-hmm. and the relationship with all the, the people. Um, not only that, all of them remained friends. Mm-hmm. All of them became customers, even with the ones that went to companies that weren't using our software. You know, turned turned around the company to purchasing the software product from yeah. our side. So all of them are customers. All of them are friends. And we have really great relationships. But again, the, the actual day I had to announce this and have one-on-one conversations, let people know that this is the direction of the business moving forward and some of you will move with us and some won't. <laughs> Single hardest day yeah, of my life, right? It was sucked. Uh, and in that moment, you don't have the advantage of hindsight to know everything will work out well. And people mm-hmm. don't, right? So it's a terrifying, terrifying right. event for people. But, uh, but, but I'm glad how everything turned out. Uh, it was still very difficult to, to do that. Yeah, uh, I can barely imagine. Like, uh, I think this is something entrepreneurs might not. I guess many of us have a pre-entrepreneurial career where we had the employee mindset. Uh, I certainly did, but I think entrepreneurs we have our own little culture about stuff, and we're like, yeah, you know, you get a company shot on a shout out from under you. That's no problem. "Quote unquote," real people who have jobs and expect a paycheck every two weeks. Like getting separated from a company when they didn't see that coming is a really big problem. Yes. And I think, you know, we're like, oh yeah, fail quickly. Yeah, we're going to dissolve the company, start a new one, yada, yada. We, we kind of owe it to employees to uh, find them 
soft landing is a term of art, but it's a useful term of art. Like find them a transition plan that uh, minimizes the stress for them. Because you know, it's like employment isn't just a business relationship. It's one. It's the one business relationship that's sort of a sacred trust too. Yeah, you got to take care of those folks. So I'm really glad you managed to do that in a in a forthright and mutually tri-party mutually uh, successful manner. So um, I think this is probably running to the hour and a half that these podcasts usually run. So uh, where can folks find out more about Closed.io if they want to, aside uh, from Closed.io? Closed.io is a good way to get started. There, uh, If you go to Closed.io slash blog, when you go to a blog, there's a lot of sales content that people can, can read and a lot of people seem to like it. People can just get in touch with me personally if they want to, if they mm-hmm. want to chat sales, entrepreneurship, anything else, just steli, S-T-E-L-I, at close.io. And we do have an email course to no small part. Uh, yeah, uh, steli <laughs> took my course on doing lifecycle emails. So Yeah. Uh, and it worked out for you, right? It worked out. I don't know how many thousands we're making more every month because of it, but it's a lot. So we we, uh, we owe a lot to you. going to write that down for a testimony <laughs> for the page. Absolutely. I don't know how many thousands, thousands. we're making for it, but it's a lot. lot. It's a lot. Folks. Um, <laughs> So, so we have a startup sales email course for people that thought some of the things were interesting and they want to learn more. It actually is both. You can learn both more about startup sales and uh, learn what I learned from Patrick in terms of the putting email courses together. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks very much, Joe, and I'll sign off for myself. Uh, yeah, I'm Patrick. Uh, I always love getting emails from people, so please drop me an email. It's patrick at calzumias.com. Uh, presumably that's spelled wherever you're listening to this. If for some reason you aren't on my email list yet, you really should be on my email list. It's at training.calzumias.com. Uh, just give me your email address. I will send you stuff that you enjoy. One announcement that is upcoming for me, I've been working on a conversion optimization course for the last several months, all about B2B SaaS businesses, getting them more trials, more sales, yada, yada. It will hopefully be launching later in July. If you look on the bottom of this uh, podcast, there will be, oh, I guess I'll just give a bit.ly link, like bit.ly slash Calzumius Podcast Conversion. Yeah, that's there. Calzumius Podcast Conversion. There, that, a long one. Uh, just click that and you can get uh, an announcement when that uh, course launches. But again, hoping to get it done in July. Well, thanks very much. It was an awesome conversation. I particularly like how like, we got into actual nuts and bolts of it for SaaS businesses with the LTV in like the 5K to 10K range because I've worked with companies that have you know, started fits and spurts in the sales, and it's really made a difference for the business. So thanks much for uh, showing up and uh, for all you guys in the audience. Hopefully we'll have another one in another month or two, and uh, we'll see you next time. (laughs) Thank you so much. Bye, guys. All right, bye, guys.